0: Good morning, everyone. My name's Hauran, if we haven't met, and um, congratulations for making it through that Bible reading. Um, if, you, um, if you need, if you, this is your moment if you need to stand up, have a stretch, adjust your position, um, you know. Uh, here's a tip. Um, sometimes it gets a little bit chilly in this church during winter. There are heaters up the front, and so, blessed are you who sit closer to the front. Be warm. <laughs> And also, you get the, the, comfortable, the comfortable seats. Um, Hans has got us into the habit of um, recommending books. So, I'm going to recommend a book. Whoa, what happens? Cool. Um, my copy's inexplicably gone missing, so I can't give it to anybody. Um, but uh, you can actually, this, is, this book is uh, well out of copyright. It was written in the 1600s originally. And so, you can buy it for a dollar on a Kindle. Um, It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is an odd sort of name. Somebody gave it to me at my 21st, and I didn't understand for a while until I started reading it, Uh, but it's a wonderful and it's a sobering book. Uh, There's an early Protestant historian called John Fox, and um, he collected accounts of Christians who had died, and he went all the way back to Jesus and John the Baptist, all the way to Stephen, we'll talk about him today, all the way to the 15th century, 16th century Protestant contemporaries like Hugh Latimer or Nicholas Ridley, um, and it's sobering, and it's interesting, and it draws you into the fact that actually, even though I became a Christian when I was 18, uh, and I didn't, I, I didn't, like, you know, somehow, even though, you know, when I became a Christian, uh, my, um, yeah, a lot of my family were Christian, I wasn't really connected, but this sort of thing connected me to 2,000 years of Christian history. Um, so, Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, it, there's a whole stack of different covers, you probably won't see, like, yeah, <laughs> you'll search for it and you'll find 20 or 30 different covers because it's it's been going around for a long, long time. It's a very good book. Um, if you don't have a dollar to buy it on a Kindle, I'll give you a dollar. Uh, let's get into it. Um, so... One of the good news stories of the past week has been the good news surrounding uh, the Muruguppans or the uh, Nadez, Nadez Salangam family. Uh, you may have seen them. Uh, you might also know them, know them as the Biloela family, uh, which is the Queensland town where Nadez and Priya, as Tamil refugees from Sri Lanka, they met, they married, they had their first child. And the town of Biloela had warmly welcomed them as part of the community before in 2018, Uh, May 2018, they were forcibly removed by the Australian Border Force and put back into detention. Now, the good news story of this week is that they've been granted bridging visas for the entire family, and so they and their two little girls can now return to Biloela and they can all start to live normal lives outside of detention. I think about these two little girls sometimes. In the normal course of things, right, in the normal course of things, any kid born in Australia gets Australia's citizenship. That's how it works. I was born in Australia at the time my parents weren't citizens and yet I got citizenship. But that's not a privilege that's been afforded to them. And so I think about these little girls and I wonder how these two girls will feel growing up. I wonder if if they will feel like Australia is home to them. I wonder if they feel like Australia is a place that's really welcomed them. And I wonder if they'll ever fathom how much certain people in Australia didn't want them here. I wonder if they'll ever feel like they belong here. Belonging at the best of times can be hard. You may know what that feels like. Even as an Australian citizen, I've had racist people say to me, "Go home," and they yell out on the street. Or well, they' slightly nicer but still racist people will ask me, where are you from? And I say, uh, North Ride. And they say, no, 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 where are you really from? And I sm- shrug and smile, um, because I'm no longer 20 when I would have gotten angry. But Australia is the only home I've ever known. I- I've been to Malaysia, where my parents are from. The food is nice, the weather's terrible. It's too hot, um, it's too humid. I don't really know what the people are like, because I just spend time with my family uh, when I'm there, my extended family. My parents were born there, but that's not where I belong. I've been to China. I didn't understand what anyone was saying. It seemed like a foreign country because it was a foreign country. Uh, Australia is the only home I've ever known. But feeling like you belong can be really hard sometimes. So too with the Christian life. On the one hand, the Christian life is an individual journey. It's about you. It's about what you believe. It's about how you need to trust God. It's about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that can be a bit of a lonely road sometimes. You may be the only person in your group of friends or in your workplace or in your family who believes. So sometimes on our lonely journey, we need to be reminded that there's a place where we belong. There is a history that you belong to, there is a people. That you belong to. You may have been a Christian for 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 60 years, but you're also part of a movement with a 2,000 year old history. You're part of a movement with believers in almost every country around the world, people that you can call brother and sister. And that's not lip service, those people in other countries are family. And so today, as we look into the persecution of Stephen in Jerusalem in the first century, We're looking at an event with direct links as to why you still sit here today in Sydney, in Australia, on the other side of the world in the 21st century. So stick with me because it's a long passage today. We have a lot to get through. And we're going to look at the why of Stephen's arrest and his execution. Then we're going to look at the trial and then what happens afterwards. But before we do that, let's pray. Father in heaven, These events of the first century, the execution of Stephen, we can see what's happening and that it's terrible and it shouldn't happen. But sometimes it can be hard to figure out what would, in the 21st century, why we're reading these things all the way back in the first century. But Father, we want to thank you that we have the Holy Spirit. We want to thank you that these words here are living, breathing words from you to us. And we want to pray that you'd help us to cross Two thousand years of history. We want to pray that you help us to be in the first century and understand what's going on, and understand what it means for our lives when we go home to families and lunches and workplaces and um, and 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 rents and mowing the lawn and all sorts of mundane things. How does how do you speak into our lives today? We want to pray that you help us to pay attention. Um, we want to pray that you help us to. Uh, to come to the come to your word with our brains and our hearts open, and would you speak to us today, in Jesus' name, Amen. Sometimes I think the easiest way to approach the Bible a Bible passage is just to ask the basic questions, right? So, who, what, why, where, and when? So, what's actually happening in this passage? Well, what's happening is the persecution of the trial, the death of Stephen, the first. Christian martyr. That's the what. When is this happening? We, this is approx- a lot of ha- a lot has happened in the Book of Acts, but this is approximately a year or two after the death of Jesus. So it's really it's really not that far removed from the Gospels. Now, why is this happening? And that's that's where the rubber hits the road. Have you ever, in, in some sense, what's what's happening is inevitable. Have you ever done that experiment where you put a Mentos? in a bottle of Coke. What's going to happen? Well, there's only one possible outcome, right? which is you put a Mentos in a Coke and um, it's a much better thing to do with a bottle of Coke than drinking it. What happens at an election when the Labor Party and the Liberal Party meet? It's inevitable. There's going to be a conflict. What happens when there's two siblings and there's only one Tim Tam left? Conflict is inevitable. Jesus' church and the Jewish religious authorities are on a collision course, and the Jewish authorities are going to object to Jesus and his followers, and they're going to seek to remove them with force. See, Stephen's death is not a random event. It's the climax of tensions that have been steadily escalating throughout the book of Acts, and is one of the major pivot points for the rest of the book. And so, on the one hand, we've seen... The rapid growth of the early church so um, I'm going to run through this really quickly back in chapter two in response to Peter's sermon at Pentecost three thousand believers were uh, three thousand people believed and were baptized um, after that the Lord kept adding to their number daily up in chapter uh, chapter five more and more men and women believed in the Lord they were added to their number six verse seven it's getting contagious the word of God is spreading um, Even priests are becoming Christians. And the presence of these Christians is becoming transformative, right? They're showing charity. They're helping people in need. They're showing hospitality to each other, breaking bread in each other's homes. They're making sacrificial decisions to help each other. Everyone in Jerusalem is talking about these Christians. There are crowds coming from outside Jerusalem, just coming to see what's going on, coming to hear what's going on. On the other hand, that's the one hand. On the other hand, Opposition to the church is rising. You see, not long after Pentecost, Peter and John, they went to the temple, they healed a man, which gets them arrested. The religious leaders don't want them talking about Jesus. Peter and John say, no, nah, you know what, we're going um, to listen to God instead of you. As the church grows, the apostles continue to teach in the temple. And eventually, whoops, uh, there we are, yes, And eventually, as the apostles are teaching in the temple, um, this leads to the leaders arresting the apostles in Acts chapter 5. God intervenes and releases them. But what ends up happening is the high priests, all the associates who are members of the parties of the Pharisees, they were filled with jealousy. So already they're motivated. They don't like these Christians. They don't like what's going on. And um, they are looking at them with murderous intent. They were furious and wanted to put them to death. And it's worth remembering, of course, that all of this already began with a murder one or two years ago. One or two years ago, these same religious authorities conspired to kill Jesus, the ruler and the judge of the universe. And so this tension is coming to a head. And it's worth remembering, as we think about all these things going on, as we think about this conflict about to arise, it's worth reading two more things from Acts chapter one that set up our expectations about what's going to happen. Right? So, 1 verse 1, the book of Luke, the book of Luke was about um, what Jesus began to do, what's the implication? Acts, the book of Acts, is about what Jesus continues to do. Some people call Acts the Acts of the Apostles, but really, the book of Acts is the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus, it's about what He does. And what is Jesus going to do? 1 verse 8, Jesus says that you, that you Christians, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And that's important because when it comes to persecution, when persecution comes, it's easy to think that God is not in control. It's easy to think, why is this happening to me? It's easy to go... It's easy to doubt God's goodness. It's easy to doubt God's faithfulness and his enduring kindness. It's easy to doubt that God is in control. But we're reminded in case we've forgotten, right at the end, there is Jesus at the right hand of God, reminding us that even in the most chaotic and unpredictable and unpleasant times, that he is king, that he is in control. And so when we read Acts, we should be asking the question, what is Jesus doing here? How is Jesus using this situation, this conflict, this death of Stephen, how is Jesus using this situation to grow the church and bring glory to his name? Spoiler alert, the, the, the gospel has only really gone to Jerusalem so far, right? If we, if we went back to 1 verse 8, it's supposed to go, well, it's only gone to Jerusalem so far. So how's he going to get to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? Well, just like Joseph in Egypt, what they intended for harm, God intends for good, for the saving of many lives. Let's see what's going to happen. So Stephen's on trial. Uh, Presumably the Sanhedrin think that they can make an example out of Stephen uh, to all those pesky Christians out there. And this is what they've got to say. They say, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this place. And he's going to change the customs that Moses handed down to them. Stephen's speech is really long. We're not going to go through it verse by verse, but I think um, he makes two main, there's at least two main points that you can pull out of what Stephen has to say. As you can see by their accusations, one of the things they're accusing Stephen of is saying Jesus is going to destroy the temple. And Stephen points out, as he gives them the history lesson, he points out it's not about a holy place, it's about the holy God that you worship in the temple. So I think we know this, but it's important to remember, right? Consider this church building. Look at the bricks, look at the um, literal bricks around you, right? This, This church building, it's an important place where faithful saints have sacrificed to build and they worshiped here for a long time and we continue to worship here, but... If this church building burnt down tomorrow, we, the people of God, could could worship the holy God, the God of heaven and earth, standing out there in the car park. Yeah, hands would have to shout a bit, I would have to shout a bit, but we could get the job done. We could worship God in the open air. We don't need stained glass or fancy sandstone or wooden pews. Little side note, did you know that churches did not have pews until the 14th century? So, 14, so um, yeah, 1400 years of Christian history, they didn't really sit down in church. They either um, they stood, or they sat on the floor, or they knelt on the floor as they worshipped God together. So pe- pews are quite a re- relatively recent innovation. But what matters, right, is not the building. The building's nice to have, but it's not the building. It's about the God you worship in the building, and that building can be anywhere. Like Stephen says, heaven is heaven is God's throne. The earth is His footstool. In some sense, all of the earth is holy ground. And Stephen keeps pointing this out, right? Like if you look at Abraham, he was a landless nomad, and yet God came and spoke to him. He makes this point of saying, well, Abraham didn't own a patch of land. And look at Israel. Israel carried this tabernacle all around the wilderness. They, didn't, they, they moved from place to place to place to place. It wasn't one fixed location that they worshipped God in. They kept moving. Look at Solomon. Even he understood. He built the temple, but God is bigger than that. He says, the the Most High does not live in houses built by human hands. And no doubt Stephen is thinking what Solomon said when he dedicated the temple, when he opened it. He said, but will God really dwell on earth with, with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built. At the end of the day, the Jewish religious leaders have a problem with their theology. They're trying to fit God into a box, into a temple-sized box. They're trying to tie him to a time and a place and put limits on what God can and can't do. And what they fail to understand is, actually, you can't put God in a box. They failed to learn uh, Theology 101, something that even our children learn, right? Our God is so big, so strong... So, mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Theology 101, what God can do is he can raise people from the dead. And what God can do is send his gospel throughout Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea to the very ends of the earth. And what he can do is use people, ordinary people, weak human beings like you and me, to go to the ends of the earth Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, all the way to Australia. And those people can worship God no matter where they are. Right, We don't need to make a special pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God. Right here, right now, we can worship God in the place where we are, a million miles from Jerusalem. Heaven is God's throne, earth is his footstool, and that means all of this earth is holy ground. We can worship God everywhere. So, in the temple, what they should be doing, they should be worshipping the God who says and the God who speaks. And Stephen's second point is they should be listening to this God who speaks in this temple. And that's his second point, right? So, they talk about customs. The Jewish religious authorities, they talk about their customs, but do they listen to God? Do they listen to the prophets who bring them God's word? Do they listen to God's message of salvation? Because as Stephen constantly reminds him, salvation is constantly on offer. Right? There was a famine in Canaan, but Jacob and his sons were going to starve, but God used Joseph in Egypt to save Israel and feed them and give them safe harbor. And then the Israelites became enslaved in Egypt and God used Moses to rescue them. And he led them out of Egypt, performed signs and wonders, and gave them his word at Sinai. But, and you'll notice this all the way through Acts chapter 7, how has Israel customarily responded to the people that God sends. Well, God gave Joseph visions and he used them to save Israel from famine, but what did they do? They rejected Joseph. They threw him into a well, sold him into slavery. God chose Moses to save Israel out of Egypt, but they rejected Moses, even though they were slaves. Who made you ruler and judge over us, they say? This is the same Moses they had rejected with their words. Who made you ruler and judge? He, Stephen says it twice, just in case you weren't paying attention. And then Moses went up to Mount Sinai and brought them the very words of God written on a tab on, on those two stone tablets. But what did they do? Did they go, hey, God's word, that's brilliant. No, what did they do? They rejected Moses. They rejected Moses in the, in the desert. They made their own gods to worship. This continues... They rejected God. They worshipped other false gods. They were sent into Babylon. And they go on to reject the prophets. They go on to reject the prophets time and time and time again. I'm going to give you all the verses, but a really quick summary. Uh, Elijah, remember, he's a prophet. He had to run from his life from Ahab and Jezebel. He felt like he was constantly on the run for his life. There was Elisha. He was ignored. He was was mocked. There was Micaiah in... um, Chronicles, he was thrown into jail. Jeremiah, he was opposed, he was mocked, he was thrown into a well in the palace, kept under guard. Um, Zechariah was stoned to death in the courtyard of the temple. It goes on and on and on and on. And the history of Israel, right, is they don't want someone to be a ruler and judge. They are hard-hearted and they don't want to listen to the word of God or the prophets of bring them. They don't want someone to save them. And the deep irony of this situation is this, right? Um, These Jewish religious leaders are very much following the customs that have been handed down to them. When they they persecuted and they executed Jesus, they continued to reject the one that God sent. They continued to reject the person who came to them with God's word, who was sent from God. They continued to reject the ruler, the judge, the saviour. And now here they are, they're about to persecute and execute Stephen, who has been telling them of the good news, but also the sin that they need to repent of in their hearts. Stephen's point is this. The Jewish religious authorities have rejected Jesus and persecuted him because their theology was wrong and their hearts were wrong. They don't understand God, and so they don't accept God when he speaks of them. And before we start pointing fingers at other people, because it's really easy to go, yeah, these guys really aren't very smart, how good is our theology? Do we understand the truths about God, and do we dig deep into the Bible, week in and week out, to understand the true and living God who speaks to us in these pages? One of the things I've been excited about this year is the theology sessions that Hans has been running called The Engine Room. Um, It's always exciting to dig deeper into what we know about God and be challenged. But hopefully you also go really deep in your growth groups and your quiet times and you just dig into God's word. Because this word is exciting. It is God speaking to us. And where's your heart at? Are you prone to rejecting God? How do you respond when you hear things that you don't want to hear? How do you respond when God tells you you need a savior because you just can't save yourself? I don't know about you, but by nature, I am a little bit stubborn. Just a little bit. Um, My wife is nodding. Um, I'm a little bit stubborn. I don't like being told what to do. And if somebody tells me to do something, I immediately want to not do that thing. I want to do the opposite. Um, And so for me, and perhaps for you, I need to constantly check my heart. Um, Am I obedient to God? Do I realize that I need salvation? Do I keep accepting my deep need for Jesus? But this heart problem is endemic in humanity too, isn't it? We know, we know that people reject Jesus and people are constantly rejecting Jesus. Not just these religious leaders, but, but our world. Marsfield, Sydney, Australia, the West the East, everywhere, people reject Jesus. There are a lot of people who hear the good news and they don't want to listen and they don't think this is the truth and they don't want to be told they need a saviour. The non-Christian world can be appreciative when we run hospitals and we set up schools and we help the poor. But when we talk about Jesus, often it leads to persecution, which is what we're going to talk about now. Here we come to the pointy end of our story. As we said, persecution has been growing against Christians ever since they murdered, ever since they murdered Jesus. And now they're coming to murder Stephen. Let's have a quick reread. This is a bit too small? I'll read it out. 7 verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." And then he fell on his knees and cried out, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." And when he had said this, um, and when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of them their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What happens next? What happens next is very odd. You see, the death of Stephen should have stopped the church, right? That's that's kind of what the Jewish religious authorities wanted. They thought, we'll kill Stephen, we'll make an example of him. This is what happens. A great persecution broke out. All those pesky Christians were driven out of the city, and they should have been scattered, and they should have been scared, and that should have, they should have gone into hiding and. That should have been the end of the story. But we know, because the book of Acts doesn't end at this point, that's not the end of the story. It's only the beginning. And it's a weird sort of thing, but it's this, right, which is central to Christianity, is this. Jesus flips everything upside down. He inverts world orders. He defies expectations. And with Jesus is this paradox. Right. Think about Jesus. The path to kingship is to serve the beggar and the thief. The path to victory is death on a cross. How does Jesus win? Jesus wins by dying. And as Jesus says a servant is not greater than his master. So when Stephen dies and the saints are scattered to the winds, they're not flower petals that wither and die. They are seeds that spread and grow. The early Christian scholar, Tertullian Families, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christians, they go, just like refugees today, and they may not take much with them, but they take the most valuable thing they have. They take the gospel. And though we are weak, And that gospel can sound like foolishness to some. Jesus, Jesus is powerful. The Holy Spirit is irresistible. Hearts changed. The difference between petals and seeds. Seeds are planted and they grow and they spread and they multiply. And next week, next week we'll see Philip's adventures and later we'll meet Christians growing all over the place. In Samaria, in Damascus, in Lydda, in Caesarea, in Antioch. And that's even before they start to send missionaries like Paul throughout the Mediterranean. As Christians are persecuted, they leave their homes and they take the gospel with them and the church spreads and it grows. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. One of the unavoidable facts of Christianity is that persecution against Christians has been ongoing from the first century all the way to this very day. I mentioned Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, recording martyrs all the way back to the first century. The apostles were executed. John was exiled. Nero threw Christians to the lion. lions. It goes on. Um, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were Protestant bishops in the 16th century. Queen Mary, the violently pro-Catholic, anti-Protestant queen, ordered them to be burnt at the stake. Hugh Latimer is famous for saying, before they were burnt alive, the two of them together, he said, "Be of good cheer, Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out." Or there was Jim Elliot, a missionary who famously said, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." He died at the age of twenty-eight, evangelizing unreached people groups in Ecuador deep in the Amazon. He was killed by 10 uh, Huarani who ambushed Jim Elliott and his companions on January the 8th, 1956. In 1968, Stanley Dale, a graduate of SMBC, and Phil Masters were murdered reaching out to the Yali people in Irian Jaya, West New Guinea. They were shot with hundreds of arrows. When they recovered Stanley Dale's New Testament, which had been pierced by an arrow, the point of the arrow had stopped at Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. On the 23rd of January 1999, Graham Staines was sleeping in his car along with his two sons. They were attacked by a Hindu fundamentalist mob and they were burnt alive in their car. He'd spent nearly three decades working as an evangelical medical missionary, caring for leprosy patients and others in abject poverty. Indonesia, August 2021. Muhammad Kake was convicted of blasphemy for Christian content he published on YouTube. He's been imprisoned. He hasn't gotten out yet. In Myanmar, September 2021, a pastor was shot dead and five churches burnt down by the Myanmar military. 7th of April this year, Asanios Wadid, a church minister in Egypt, he was running a youth group outing to the beach. Just as they were getting on the buses to return back home, a 60-year-old man rushed up and stabbed him in the name of Allah. Police have determined it was premeditated. On the 11th of April, Anushavan Avedian, an Iranian-Armenian pastor, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for running a house church in Tehran. Earlier this month, extremist groups in Calcutta, India, have been outraged by a pastor distributing Bibles in a prison. And now they're lobbying for Bibles to be banned in prisons and schools across the state. And barely four, years, four days ago, Islamist, Islamic State published a video showing the execution of 20 Nigerian Christians. The persecution of Christians is an active reality for our brothers and sisters all over the world. And it has been so through all of human history, through much of human history. The fact that we can freely meet and worship peacefully is a wonderful blessing that we should never take for granted. And I don't, I don't say all this to shame you or to scare you. We are here in God's sovereignty, in his good plans and purposes, and he's seen fit to grant us our situation where we can worship in peace. But we also need to stand in unity with brothers and sisters across the globe. The Apostle Paul wrote, If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Maybe you've had this experience of meeting a Christian for the first time, and sometimes it feels like you've known them forever. There's a kinship. You have so much in common, like like you're already family. Because you are. The reality is you have more in common with a shoemaker in a small house church in Iran than your non-Christian next-door neighbour. You have more in common with a Christian plantain farmer in Nigeria for whom Boko Haram is an existential threat than your non-Christian family. They suffer, we suffer. And whenever we look persecution in the face or on behalf of brothers and sisters across the globe, remember how Stephen looks persecution in the face of bravery. He looks to Jesus. He sees the man standing at the right hand of God who will come to judge the world with righteousness. And so what can we do? What can we do? Well, first of all, we should pray. John Calvin. Against the persecution of a tyrant, the godly, have no remedy but prayer. It's a good reminder that we are weak, but God is strong and he can do amazing things if only we ask. Pray. Pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe. Pray for an end to persecution. Pray for the gospel to keep spreading. Pray for Jesus to return. If you're not sure what to pray for, I'd encourage you to spend some time learning. The Christian world is bigger than Marsfield or Sydney or Australia. I'll commend to you two reputable organisations. You can get emails from them regularly and get informed. Uh, the Voice of the Martyrs uh, and the Barnabas Fund are two reputable organisations and they're good people. Both of those organisations also have, means to, have ways to give, so you have the conviction and the means. That's available. Also, buy Fox's Book of Martyrs and learn about our Christian legacy because this is our legacy. The vision we see... Well, the third thing we can do, well, the vision back in Acts chapter 1... We want to see the gospel go out to the ends of their world. We don't just want to see a flood of believers become Christians here in Marsfield, but across the world. And we want to see that regardless of the personal cost. If you're interested in being part of God's mission to the world, there's a million possibilities. They don't just want fresh-faced students and still optimistic Bible college graduates. If you know something about business, if you've ever worked in healthcare, if you have time and effort and two willing hands, there's so much you can do to help on the mission field. And if that's something that piques your interest, uh, the single best conference you can go to is reach out. Go chat to dozens of missionary agencies about what's on your heart and how you want to serve. Find something that fits your age and stage and inclination. Um, And you you can pray, you can learn, you can go, but also endure. Because when persecution comes for you, when suffering comes for you, Remember what James says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Or Paul. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Or the early apostles. And they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Two final stories. Four years after the murder of Stanley Dale and Phil Masters, 35 Yali people were baptised into Christ, among them some of their murderers. The Gospel of Mark that Stanley Dale had translated is still in the hands of the Yali people. Jim Elliott died at the age of 28, murdered by people he was trying to bring the gospel to. His wife, Elizabeth, had every right to mourn her husband, to take take their 10-month-old daughter home and go go home. Instead, what did she do? She stayed ministering among the Quechua Indians and the Huarani people. She wrote, as long as this is what the Lord requires of me, then all else is irrelevant. The Joshua Project estimates that as many as 40% of the Huarani people are Christian now. The blood of the martyrs, says to Italian, is the seed of the church. And Jesus is growing his church. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven... We want to come before you on our knees and pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe. We want to thank you for the peace that we enjoy, for the lack of persecution we enjoy in Sydney, in Australia, and the freedom we have to meet. But we know that so many of our brothers and sisters are suffering. They can't meet in public. or when they do, it comes at risk and there are threats. Father in heaven, would you show mercy? Would you give them freedom to meet? Would you give them bravery and courage in the face of persecution and suffering? Lord Jesus, would your church continue to grow? Would you help us to keeping faithful, um, faithful to the task of the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth? And Father in heaven, we want to pray along with all the martyrs under the temple. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Return and bring an end to all the suffering in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.